0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the unprecedented lawsuit filed in federal court today by the Manhattan DA against Congressman Jim Jordan, the Republican chair of the House Judiciary Committee, accusing him of a brazen and unconstitutional attack on the DA's prosecution of Trump charging that, quote, rather than allowing the criminal process to proceed in the ordinary course, Chairman Jordan and the committee are participating in a campaign of intimidation, retaliation, and obstruction. Joining us is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor to Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers, And we will discuss Jordan's plans to bring his clown show circus to Manhattan on April the 17th and also investigate the damaging Pentagon leaks that have the U.S. intelligence community in a state of alarm. Then we'll examine the impact of the leaks on Ukraine's military preparedness and discuss rumors of divisions, Russian moles and corruption at the highest levels inside Ukraine's leadership with Alexander Motil, a professor of political science at Rutgers University, as well as a writer and painter. He previously served as associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. A specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empires, and theory, he is the author of a number of books, including Dilemmas of Independence, Ukraine After Totalitarianism, State and Ethnicity and Stability in the USSR, and The Turn to the Right, The Ideological Origins and Development of Ukrainian Nationalism, 1919-1929. to Then finally we'll go to Dublin, Ireland, to speak with Rory Carroll, a veteran journalist who started his career in Northern Ireland. As a foreign correspondent for The Guardian, he reported from the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, Africa, Latin America and the United States. His first book, Comandante Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, was named an Economist Book of the Year and a BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week. He's now based in his native Dublin as the Guardian's Island correspondent. And we will discuss President Biden's brief visit to Northern Ireland today, followed by a three-day trip to his ancestral home, the Republic of Ireland, where two of his great-grandparents came from. We will also discuss Rory's new book, Just Out, There Will Be Fire, Margaret Thatcher, the IRA and two minutes that changed history. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our soundbites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and furor, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org/slash donate, or at our tax-deductible nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org, contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton.
1: Great to be with you, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. I wanted to talk to you about this ongoing leaks investigation from the Pentagon. Just more and more stuff is coming out, and it's apparently got... The Pentagon and the intelligence community in a quite a state trying to figure all this out. But something just happened today which I wanted to discuss with you, and that is the fact that the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg has sued Jim Jordan, the grandstanding head of the uh, House Judiciary Committee, who's planning on taking his show on the road to Manhattan on April the 17th uh, to do what they call a field hearing which will be, of course, an attempt to basically whitewash Trump and say that uh, there's a witch hunt and then try and change the subject to the crime rate in Manhattan. But Alvin Bragg is having none of it, it seems. He's preemptively suing Jim Jordan. So what's likely to happen here, do you think?
1: I have to say, I mean, this is unprecedented. I've never seen uh, anything like this involving a state attorney general or a state uh, prosecutor, local prosecutor, dealing with Congress. But I have to say, I think it's likely that he's going to prevail. He's, he's requesting declaratory relief, so he wants a federal judge to say that the subpoena that was already issued to Mark Pomerantz is beyond the authority um, of the Congress to issue, um, and is ultra-virus and need not be... Um, Uh, responded to. So basically a determination that that subpoena is no good uh, and a preemptive determination also that any other subpoena issued to Alvin Bragg or other members of his office is is no good. Um, And I would say that, you know, courts really don't like to get involved in the question of enforcement of congressional subpoenas. But um, uh, I think Jim Jordan has gone out so far on the ledge here he's not likely to make much headway with the the federal court that's hearing it. Um, And I expect that there'll be a ruling on it pretty quickly. Um, The complaint that's been filed is a really quite remarkable document prepared by Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher, a Los Angeles law firm that's actually quite well known for its ties to the Republican Party. Um, They're representing Alvin Bragg in this. And they have quite meticulously documented everything that uh, Jim Jordan and uh, the speaker, Kevin McCarthy, have said about this from the beginning. Every tweet, every uh, statement uh, documented in newspapers and so forth, every interview on broadcast media, and all these things show that what's going on is an effort to establish that Trump is innocent. So they've aligned themselves with the party who is being uh, investigated and is now under indictment. And uh, Bragg says the whole purpose of this is, uh, if anything, to collect information that can be used by uh, Donald Trump in the legal proceedings, and that's an entirely improper use of the congressional investigative powers.
0: Now, uh, in the 50-page suit, Alvin Bragg accuses Jim Jordan of a brazen and unconstitutional attack, a transparent campaign to intimidate and attack the district attorney. It also mentions the fact that rather than allowing the criminal process to proceed in the ordinary course, Chairman Jordan and the committee are participating in a campaign of intimidation, retaliation and obstruction. And He went on to say that, they, that his office has received more than 1,000 calls and emails threatening him and his wife so this is very personal, is it?
1: That's right. The threats of violence are documented, and he documents a series of tweets that were issued by by Trump and by Trump's children and others in the Trump entourage, where they make threats against uh, Alvin Bragg, against the uh, Supreme Court justice in New York, against the justice's uh, wife and his children. Um, and other members of the of the office. Uh, So, you know, it's really quite remarkable that we see pleadings like this, where accusations of this sort actually are easily documented on the basis of social media posts made by all these people.
0: So do you think, Scott, that the NYPD could arrest Jim Jordan when he shows up for his show trial? In New York in, on April the seventeenth, if he if indeed he shows up, I
1: no, I don't think I, I don't think that um, the police would do that. I don't think Alvin Bragg would request that they do that. So I think uh, Alvin I think Alvin Bragg has made the decision that this should be uh, resolved by a federal judge uh, in Manhattan. We don't know yet who's being assigned to it, um, right. and and, and, the, be- and
0: the purpose is to stop the subpoena for. Pomerantz, who was originally with the office and wrote a book critical of Bragg's not going ahead with the the original suit that they prepared against Trump. And then the expectation that Jordan will also subpoena Bragg just to muddy the waters.
1: I I think that's right. So there's no objection to him holding a hearing at 26 Federal Plaza in Manhattan. If he wants to do that, he can do it. Um, And he can call all sorts of other witnesses, but he cannot call the prosecutors who are handling the case um, to elicit what is shielded and what is uh, information that's shielded by prosecutorial privilege. Um, so I think he's, he's adhering pretty rigorously to existing ethics rules governing prosecutors. Um, and, you know, I'd be very surprised if the federal judge to whom this is referred doesn't back him up on all that.
2: Right.
0: Well, there seems to be things ex- are accelerating in terms of the other cases against Trump, not just the Manhattan DA, but uh, Manny Lewis now back, Smith's apparently coordinating with her on some of the the testimony that she's gotten from her grand jury. Stephen Miller spent several hours today in uh, Washington, D.C., before Jack Smith's grand jury. So it does feel like Smith is trying to get done quickly here. He's moving pretty fast. So... I also wanted to talk to you about these Pentagon leaks, that the Pentagon don't seem to have a clue about where they came from. What I'm hearing from intelligence sources is that they think the leaks came from the Pentagon from the J2 Joint Chiefs of Staff's intelligence arm, and somehow the Russians got hold of them, or maybe it could be a spy in the Pentagon could also be a pro-Putin person in the Pentagon, there are a lot of them at Fox News and in the House and J.D. Vance in the Senate, So, and not to mention Donald Trump. So there are plenty of Putin sympathizers around. Some of the material now, it turns out, is also CIA material, uh, it's not just the Joint Chiefs material. So it's a nightmare for, apparently, the intelligence community. What do you know? Did it go from the Pentagon to the Russians, then back to social media? Or did it go from the Pentagon to social media, as Bellingcat uh, suggests?
1: Everything I'm hearing is that the Bellingcat analysis is correct, that it seems to have gone from the Pentagon to a social, to a gaming platform. Um, And it seems to have been there for a period of a couple of months. uh, And then the Russians seem to have figured out that it was there, gotten hold of it and then made their own releases of it. I'd also just add that it seems, particularly based on statements that have come from the Koreans in the last few hours, um, that there was adulteration of some of the material. Um, So what is being circulated isn't necessarily uh, accurate. It may have been falsified in some significant ways. But notwithstanding that, it's clear that this is the biggest uh, large-scale leak of sensitive uh, materials since Edward Snowden.
0: Well, if it was altered as as the casualty figures for the Russians and the Ukrainians were swapped to make it look like there are more Ukrainians killed than Russians, that's obviously the hand of the Russians. And obviously the South Koreans are saying that conversations between their officials over sending ammunition to Ukraine has been altered. And that, again, would seem... It's in the, in Russia's interest to cause discord between the U.S. and its allies. You know, And I, my understanding is that the Ukrainians are pretty demoralized by it, and they're having some real problems. And the most alarming piece of information in it is that the Ukrainians are running out of ground-to-air missiles, and if Russia is able to then bring its air force into play, which it hasn't because it's been kept out by Ukrainian air defenses... That could change the war in Russia's favor if Russia was able to deploy its air force, which it hasn't been able to do so far. So a lot of it's very critical for for. But, I, I mean,
1: I guess I've been cautioned on some of these things that, you know, one, it seems a lot of these... It seems someone had their hands on real documents. And then, then circulating them, whether well, probably Russian intelligence sources seem to have doctored them, so they're not necessarily accurate. Um, and then beyond all that, I'm being told that yeah, you know, these things are also not exactly completely up to date. Um, so uh, they're reflecting. Like a couple things, of months old, yeah. Right, they're not, not reflecting. So, but I'd say it's, you know, it's hugely embarrassing, no matter how you cut all of that, it's hugely embarrassing to the US um, intelligence establishment. And I would say finding out the exact path by which all of this stuff became public is a pretty big deal for them right now. They've got to get to the bottom of it and figure it out. Um, And it may well be that it's not someone who had a political motive or who was engaged in espionage but was shockingly careless. I mean, one wonders, like, how do things like this get onto a gaming platform? That's pretty odd.
0: Right, but how careless would you have to be to have this material end up with... The Thug Shaker Central, there's some yes. guy down in San Diego who inhabits these Discord gaming platforms as well and sounds like he's passed it on to 4chan. Uh, my understanding is if, if he's the real ca- guy, he's certainly not the guy inside the Pentagon who leaked it, but he's the main conduit. He apparently is, he is one it? of these far-right Putin supporters here in the U.S., like, like Tucker Carlson.
1: That's, yes, well, you know, this is all just speculation for the moment, but, I mean, I think all these things are, I'm sure, concerns that are uh, flying around the Pentagon right now. Right. Um, And and will it really materially harm uh, Ukraine right now? I mean, i rather doubt that, um, but, you know, it's certainly very embarrassing, and I think it's uh, damaging to U.S. relations with NATO allies. And I think one of the main things that's very, very clear from this is that, this pro-Ukraine alliance it is not all in lockstep behind the United States. I mean, there are different countries with different levels of willingness to support and willingness to do things. And, you know, there's some who are even quite reluctant, and particularly Turkey and, and Hungary come out in, in that category. And, uh, of course, revealing all of this is very much to the interest of Russia right now.
0: Right, but just in closing, it does look, when you talk about amongst the allies who's supporting Ukraine, in terms of actually having people on the ground, the UK has 50 people, military people, inside Ukraine. Latvia has 17, France has 15, the US has 14, and the Netherlands has one. So to that extent, um, a lot of the Europeans are stepping up more than the US. And apparently the drones that we are sending the U- Ukrainians are not sufficient because they can't change frequencies. And and uh, this is really a, a new generation of war with drones, etc. So uh, I'm hearing that a lot of what we're sending the Ukrainians is, is not good. And the U.S. needs to put their money where their mouth has already been.
1: Right. But it's a, it's a rolling process. And, you know, it may be that, that we're seeing a lot of the problems that existed 60 or 90 days ago, and that doesn't necessarily mean that these are all the sure. same problems today. Right. So,
0: Okay, Scott, well, we'll, well, obviously we'll follow this, and I thank Great you for pleasure. joining us.
1: Great pleasure to be with you.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We can take a brief station break. We're back discussing rumors of divisions, Russian moles, and corruption at the highest level inside Ukraine's leadership. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Alexander Motel, a professor of political science at Rutgers University, as well as a writer and painter. He previously served as associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, and is a specialist on Ukraine, Russia and the USSR and on nationalism, revolutions, empire and theory. And he's the author of a number of books, including Dilemmas of Independence, Ukraine after totalitarianism, Sovietology, Rationality, Nationality, Coming to Grips with Nationalism in the USSR, Will the Non Russians Rebel? State Ethnicity and Stability in the USSR, and The Turn to the Right, The Ideological Origins and Development of Ukrainian Nationalism, nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty nine. Welcome to Background Briefing, Alexander Motel.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us, Alexander. And there's still a mystery about the uh, Pentagon leaks that have been very damaging to Ukraine and also embarrassing to U.S. allies. And we still don't know the origins, although intel people that I talk to say that, that the leaks came from the Pentagon to Russia so that suggests that there's a spy in the Pentagon, at least one, or a Putin sympathizer. And there are a lot of them, after all. The Republican candidate for president, Donald Trump, is chief among them. But they're also, from Bellingcat and other sources, they're saying, no, it came out of these gamers, and there's this one character in uh, San Diego that uh, might well be the culprit. So as we try to figure this out, What's happening in Ukraine? I mean, they just have to kind of swallow this because it's very damaging. Some of the information about Ukraine's military readiness and some of the leaks even suggest that the U.S. doesn't think that the counteroffensive that Ukraine is about to mount is going to be very successful.
3: Yeah, I, I, I'm not. My impression from reading the Ukrainian sources is that they're not terribly worried. Um, the official line is that the most damaging bits of information were somehow posted by the Russians, and that this is ultimately just part of a kind of propaganda war, disinformation campaign. I don't know whether that's true or not. It sounds plausible enough, um, but I think the Ukrainians, you know, they they are moving ahead with what seems to be this counteroffensive. Uh, it's been unclear as to when it's going to start, as to where it's going to begin and, and, and uh, what its targets will be. And, of course, that's intentional. So if you follow the Ukrainian sources, again, government uh, government affiliated and others, some people say it's going to start in March, others in April, still others in June, July, August, or perhaps some point towards the end of the year. Uh, there are five or six possible directions in which the counteroffensive can go. Uh, It could go either all at once, pick one out of five, start with one, move on to the third. Who knows? Uh, The Ukrainian general staff is pretty good. They've got two very good generals who've been leading the efforts up to now. So I suspect, again, I don't have insider information, but my sense is that they are not un- unnecessarily or at least in, not too much worried about what this has revealed. And inasmuch as one of the documents, which apparently was doctored perhaps by the Russians, suggests that the Ukrainians have had far higher losses than the United States has estimated, in a certain way that actually adds to sort of the cloud, the fog of war, Uh, in in Ukraine, because it just leads, perhaps leads Russians to uh, overestimate the degree to which the Ukrainians have been battered, whereas in reality, their numbers may actually still be quite, their soldiers, rather, may still be in fairly good shape. Um, So they're not too worried, again, so far. I mean, perhaps in the corridors of power that aren't accessible to outside observers, there's something of that going on. But it hasn't caused too much of a splash.
0: So, talking about the corridors of power in Ukraine, it's a little opaque, and that President Zelensky may be more of a front man that's what I'm told than, than an actual leader, and that people behind the scenes like Andrei Yermak and uh, the Defense Minister Reznikov have a lot of power. What, what's your understanding?
3: Well, the answer is partly yes. Uh, I think two years ago, three years ago, that would certainly have been an accurate assessment. I think in the last year, I mean, Zelensky has come into his own. Uh, He's got the support within the population. He's got the support, or at least within the majority of the elites, uh, he does come under occasional criticism. Some of it is very severe, but generally speaking, I'd say he's firmly in the saddle. And my guess is that when it comes to big policy, he's the one who's making the choices. Where he's not making the decisions, and this is all to the good is is when it comes to uh, military tactics and strategy. Um, you know, he, there he lets the general's Zeluzhny who's the head of the, the general staff, and then there's another one by the name of Siersky. Uh he's let them make the key decisions, uh, unlike Russia, where Putin apparently has been very much front and center in the, in, in, the, in making decisions regarding the battlefield, which partly accounts for the fact that the Russians have had so many difficulties over the last 12, 13 months. Uh, so I, I don't think Zelensky's in trouble. I don't think he's the front man. Um, but obviously, you know, he's not the only person making decisions. So there is some kind of collegial um, component to the decision making process. And we don't quite know what that is.
0: But there are rumors that I've heard that Yermak is not entirely on board in terms of having, I wouldn't say pro Russian sentiments, but being somebody that thinks at the end of the day, it's it's better to make a deal with Russia. Is that something that you heard?
3: Yes, yes. I mean, he's been criticized from day one for being sort of a manipulator, for having potentially corrupt contacts, for uh, for having contacts with the Russians, for being perhaps all too willing to seek some kind of accommodation. Uh, I've also heard the opposite, so I don't quite know what the truth is. What does lend credence to that the version that you expressed is that within the last few weeks, the Ukrainians have uncovered something like at least two, possibly more, Russian agents uh, who were actually serving in very high positions within the Ukrainian Secret Service. Um one of them happens to have been the guy who was in charge of Ukrainian of Ukrainian clandestine affairs within the Crimea. And it's been surmised, it's been suggested by serious analysts that one of the key reasons, perhaps the key reason for the ability of the Russians to advance so quickly from the south had to do with the fact that this individual, his last name is Kulinich, uh, simply gave an order that the bridges connecting Ukraine to the Crimea not be destroyed and that the minefields be deactivated. Uh, because when, you know, while all of our attention was focused on the Russian advance on Kiev, uh, justifiably so since it's the capital city, uh, in the south they actually managed to capture a significant portion of several provinces. And they did that very, very quickly with almost no resistance whatsoever. Again, in the North, there was savage resistance by the Ukrainians. In the South, very, very little. And the puzzle has always been, well, why was that the case? Why were they not prepared? Well, the answer may be that it's because this guy plus another one of his colleagues uh, happened to have been in these key positions within the Secret Service. Anyway, the reason why this matters, or at least the other reason why this matters, is that it clearly suggests that there is Russian, continued Russian influence within the Ukrainian government apparatus. I mean, that was always true in the past, and there's certainly no reason to think that it's diminished significantly in the present. Now, the Ukrainians have been on the lookout. They've caught some of these guys. My bet is that a number of them are still around, and it's not inconceivable that they've had influence on people like Yermak, and it's not inconceivable that he's been in touch with them, perhaps innocently, um, but nevertheless, you know, even innocent contacts can be utilized to one's disadvantage by a skilled operative on the other side.
0: So Yermak, as head of the office of the president, apparently also is something of a mentor of Reznikov, the uh, defense minister. And I've heard reports that he's corrupt, and that javelin missiles have have shown up in Africa, of all places. So, is there anything to those rumours?
3: I'd be very sceptical about believing those. Um, the when, you know when the accusations surfaced a few months ago, uh, a number of I mean, the Ukrainians did an audit. Well, which unsurprisingly showed that everything was in order. Uh, But a number of other agencies were involved in this. Again, I don't recall exactly who, but apparently they got a clean bill of health. What was true was that there was a scandal within the army for which Reznikov to some degree was responsible, namely that they were paying extraordinarily high prices for foodstuffs. Um, And again, some suggested, some Ukrainian analysts were saying, well, this is Reznikov skimming money off the top. Others were saying, well, good Lord, he's got this enormous defense establishment to take care of, and it's hardly a surprise. uh, Toilet seats cost $300 in the Pentagon or in other defense ministries, since they don't usually have that kind of competitive bidding. So, again, the evidence is, let's say, at best mixed. uh, um, Probably, he. my guess, again, from observing him, is that he hasn't been become he hasn't become a millionaire in the last twelve months?
0: Well, it's the last thing that Ukraine needs. Even to talking about this is not particularly helpful, because you do, already you could make the case that Putin's best play, since he's not doing well on the battlefield, is to influence the United States into. Uh, particularly his friends in the media like Tucker Carlson and in the House of Representatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene and in the Senate like J.D. Vance to get them to uh, argue and, and somehow get the U.S. to cut funds to Ukraine. And obviously... Putin's other strategy is to keep threatening nuclear war which is a way to signal to the American people that uh, this thing is dangerous and therefore we should in other words encouraging the isolationist sentiments in this country to, to think it's you know it's too dangerous to support Ukraine otherwise we'll have a nuclear war so those are his two main tactics so in terms of influencing the congress to cut funds any criticism of corruption in Ukraine of course Helps that cause, does it not?
3: Absolutely. And, you know, there's this very inaccurate, but though not completely inaccurate, stereotype of Ukraine, which it's been resisting for the last 30 years, that this is a country within which nothing else matters except for corruption. Um, and, you know, there is no democracy, there is no market, there is no market economy, there is no patriotism. None, none of this exists, and to the degree that it does, it doesn't matter. Because the country is corrupt from the top to the very bottom. And there obviously there is some truth to that, but it's just completely inaccurate. And I suspect that part of the reason why the stereotype has such long legs has to do with the with the fact that the Russians have been emphasizing it as well. Uh, Ukraine has a problem with corruption, but ironically, it's actually far less, well, you know, before the war, with with far less corruption than there was 10 or 15 years ago. It's actually made progress, but that just doesn't seem to penetrate into the public discourse. Um, And as you rightly say, because that stereotype is still there, it's just under the surface. I mean, for the time being, it's been replaced with the stereotype of the brave, patriotic Ukrainian and, you know, that obviously works to Ukraine's benefit, but it's very easy for that other stereotype to rise up to the surface. And all you need is a couple of small or better still large scandals to, to persuade people that there's, you know, there's no point, there's no strategic interest in defending an utterly corrupt society and state. Um, and that, of course, isn't true, but, you know... It, It does require that the Ukrainians make efforts, certainly on the public relations field, but equally important, more important, I guess, I mean, actually trying to uproot this, you know, the corruption to the degree that it exists. One of the things about the war is that it's made corruption more difficult. I mean, some people have obviously benefited,
1: but in general,
3: because of the atmosphere within the population and within the country, the degree to which people are literally willing to sacrifice their lives for the good of the cause, it's made people far less tolerant of the kind of everyday corruption that that plagued the country for so many years. And of course, the key oligarchs, who had been, in some ways, the key driving forces of so much of the corruption, many of them have lost their fortunes, and so they're no longer... Not really in business, and certainly they don't have the clout they had several months ago. Uh, so, you know, if one were to measure corruption in, the, in Ukraine today, my guess—I mean, if one had a reliable way of measuring it—my, I'm pretty certain that it would be significantly less than one or two or three years ago.
0: So, Alexander, just in the last couple of minutes, back to the leaks from the Pentagon. What do you make of the casualty figures? They say that the Russians have suffered 223,000 killed or wounded and the Ukrainians as many as 131,000.
3: That's probably uh, close, but not quite. Um, The Ukrainian estimates of Russian losses are about 175,000 killed which would mean that there would be about three hundred and fifty to 400,000 wounded. Uh, there's actually some very persuasive argument to suggest uh, evidence to suggest that that's actually fairly close to the reality. The Ukrainians also say officially that their losses are about one-fifth of Russian losses. I'm guessing that that's a little too optimistic an assessment, so I'd place the Ukrainian losses at about a third. So if the Russians have lost 150, let's assume 175 is just a little too high, then that would place Ukrainian losses at about 50,000, with corresponding wounded in the Ukrainian case being about 150, and the Russian case perhaps 400 or so. That sounds plausible. Uh, And when you look at the ways in which the Russians have been scrambling to draft soldiers I mean they've been they've raided their prisons something like 40,000 prisoners have been killed on the front they've been very very reliant on this mercenary group called the Wagner group Uh, they've been drafting people from all sorts of -of out-of-the-way places and promising them enormous salaries that bespeaks a military that really has significant manpower problems and if they had only lost you know 50, 60, 70 thousand out of a total of a million potentially in their armies, then they wouldn't be scrambling as much as they are at present.
0: Right, and indeed, the Wagner group, they disguise their figures by classifying a lot of the dead as missing, so they don't have to pay the death benefits, so just yes, exactly. unbelievably corrupt. I thank you for joining us, Alexander Model. I appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having me. Good morning.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Alexander Model. He's a professor of political science at Rutgers University, as well as a writer and painter. He previously served as associate director of the Harriman Institute at Columbia University and is a specialist on Ukraine, Russia, and the USSR, and on nationalism, revolutions, empire, and theory. And he's the author of a number of books including Ukraine after totalitarianism, Sovietology, Rationality, Nationality, coming to grips with nationalism in the USSR, will the non Russians rebel, state ethnicity and stability in the USSR, and the turn to the right, the ideological origins and development of Ukrainian nationalism, nineteen nineteen to nineteen twenty nine. We're going to take a brief station break, we back and go to Dublin, Ireland, to discuss President Biden's visit to his ancestral home, as well as A new book just out, There Will Be Fire, Margaret Thatcher, The IRA, and Two Minutes That Changed History. from Dublin, Ireland, is Rory Carroll, a veteran journalist who started his career in Northern Ireland as a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He has reported from the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, Africa, Latin America and the United States. His first book, Comandante, Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, was named an economist book of the year and BBC Radio 4 book of the week. He's now based in his native Dublin as The Guardian's Ireland correspondent. And his new book just out is... There Will Be Fire, Margaret Thatcher, the IRA, and Two Minutes That Changed History. Welcome to Background Briefing, Rory Carroll.
4: Thank you, Ian. Lovely to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Rory. And uh, President Biden's in Northern Ireland, having been greeted by the British Prime Minister. Uh, they'll meet tomorrow for coffee. And then tomorrow afternoon, President Biden will go to on a three-day visit to the south to the Republic of Ireland. He is the most authentically Irish president the United States has ever had, having two great-grandparents on both sides, having come from Ireland. So, And, of course, your book tells the history of the Troubles and the whole point of Biden's trip is on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, and he's made it clear that he's trying to consolidate that agreement along with the uh, Windsor Accords. So uh, it's a little... Difficult, isn't it? Tomorrow, when I mean, how is he going to bring the Northern Ireland political parties together, given that the power-sharing government is not functioning and it collapsed last year when the Democratic Unionist Party pulled out of the Stormont?
4: Well, the short answer is he won't, and he can't, and he knows that. So, what he's expected to do is well. Firstly, that's why they've, because of these complexities. about in Northern Ireland politics and the fact that, yes, there's so much to celebrate, 25 years of relative peace, and that is a huge accomplishment of the Good Friday Agreement. Yet the mood in Northern Ireland is quite ambivalent because the political dysfunction here continues. I mean, political institutions are, have been in mothballs because of a dispute uh, over Brexit, and so there's a sense of, of a political vacuum and drift. And so because it, there's a, this kind of tricky political terrain, Uh, Biden's visit to Northern Ireland will actually be quite brief in less than 24 hours. Only one public event. That will be a a talk at uh, Ulster University in Belfast. And he will only be having the briefest of chats, not even really talks, but really chats with Northern Ireland's political leaders. And he there it's expected that he, you know, he's not going to make any dramatic uh, attempts to try to fix Northern Ireland. He's not going to try and do a a Bill Clinton or a George Mitchell who broke with a Good Friday agreement because it's not his role. And, you know, there's a sense that it's, you know, the, he should just basically try and use his authority to, to try to influence gently uh, the Democratic Unionist Party that is are uh, the ones who have boycotted the the power-sharing um, arrangements in Northern Ireland. But he has to be careful because if he pushes too hard, that would backfire and merely entrench uh, the the DUP's opposition to uh, to power sharing, and so there's a sense that he's going to turn up, be quite delicate, uh, maybe make a few coded references to you know to to, uh, to all these problems, and then skedaddle and skedaddle across the border to the south of Ireland, where there's the real business for him really, which is connecting with his Irish roots.
0: But it seems that the situation in Northern Ireland. Is, is vexed by the residue of the Troubles, which you've written about, Rory, in your new book, There Will Be Fire, Margaret Thatcher, the IRA, and Two Minutes to Change History, as well as the dysfunction of Brexit itself.
4: Yes, I mean, it's these legacies, I mean, of, um, in, in some ways of, well, Margaret Thatcher, I mean, she, in a sense, paved, after surviving the Brighton bombing of 1984, the, when the IRA is almost wiped out her and her cabinet. She then went on to sign the Anglo-Irish Agreement of 1985, which in a way paved the Good Friday Agreement of 1998, um, which ushered in um, an era of relative peace. However, she also uh, um, fueled an anti-European strain in the Conservative Party, which led to Britain's exit from the European Union, which in turn led to uh, political Instability in Northern Ireland and it's thrown up all these existential questions of identity: is is Northern Ireland British or Irish, um, which previously had been mercifully blurred. That was one of the the, the 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 keys to success of the Good Friday Agreement was that it it didn't so much answer the riddles of Northern Ireland politics as as blurred them and. A part of that success depended on the European Union blurring the borders between the, the north and south of Ireland, um, and Brexit has ripped that away and has kind of forced the region to confront these really intractable issues. And so that's why you know it's it's such a it's a strange time here. I mean, yes, there is peace, but it's it's not a settled peace. And Biden has to navigate all of that.
0: So you mentioned uh, Wednesday afternoon he flies to Dublin for a good time <laughs> after an ambivalent uh, time in in Northern Ireland and of course Bill Clinton had an ecstatic visit uh, in in 1995 he was the first American president to visit Northern Ireland as well as the Republic the New York Times described it as uh, the Irish gave Bill Clinton the best two days of his presidency. And 60 years ago, John F. Kennedy described his Irish trip in 1963 as the best four days of his life. So is Biden in for a good time?
4: Well, you're raising the bar pretty high there. I suspect that um, he will be, uh, uh, you know, receives um, extremely with a lot of affection and warmth. In, uh, in Ireland, North and South, but especially in the South, because people do appreciate the fact that his it, the importance of his Irish roots, it's not some shtick, it's not something he, do, he does to try to kind of rally, you know, the somewhat mythical Irish-American vote in US politics. It's something that he really does feel is important to him. He's been here several times before, prior to being president to connect with um, his ancestral land on, on both sides of, the, of, of Ireland. He's got... Relatives in County Louth, and then on the west coast um, in County Mayo, and he's met them repeatedly, and he's spoken about it. That's part of his 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 soul, and you know there's a lot of respect uh, here, and appreciation for that. So when he meets the Irish President Michael D Higgins and the the Irish government figures, there'll be a big banquet. Uh, there'll be he'll be making a joint address to the, um, to the joint Houses of Parliament, and then he'll be make he'll be meeting his rallies, his cousins. Um, in, in Dundalk and in Ballina, in Ballina, and they, you know, they can't wait to see him. But all of that said, the, there's no sense that I've seen so far of rapture. Um, I mean, I was here for the Clinton visit in '95, and the mood now is this is different. Um, and it's so there'll be kind of respect and warmth, but not jubilation.
0: So it's not going to do him a lot of good with the 30 million Americans of Irish descent, which is what a tenth of the US population?
4: Yeah, I don't think it ever does. Um, I mean, you know, the, 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 yes, there are 30 million Irish Americans, but they've never, we, as far as I know, ever really voted, you know, for a candidate on the basis of their Irishness. Um, and certainly the fact that we see now, you know, so many Irish Americans are Republicans. Um, and around Donald Trump, there are a lot of um, prominent Irish Americans there. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's obviously a very fractured vote um, now. And so, you know, I think for, for Biden, you know, that's why this really does seem like it's a largely personal thing. He feels invested in Irish, uh, his Irish identity and also Catholicism. There will be some some very, especially in County May, he'll be visiting a Catholic shrine and he there, he would be expected to to, to, uh, to make prayers there privately. And it just does seem that this is something that it's kind of an itch that he wants to scratch. And so, you know, to be doing a sort of, it's almost like a, he's called it a holiday in the sense that he wants to consider this as almost a, it has to be an official visit, but really it's, uh, it's a sense of, of Biden wanting to, to scratch a personal itch.
0: Right. And he's not going to King Charles's coronation, he's sending his wife. So that in itself seems to be a statement. Would you agree? Uh, yes, although so there is
4: precedent for that. Um, I think in previous presidents um, have sent either spouse or not attended the coronation. Um, some of the British media are, are are taking umbrage at this and say, is this a snub? And so on. Um, I, I'm not sure it, it, it really is. I mean, with Biden, of course, you know, there's, he makes jokes, often off-color jokes about, I think when the BBC once tried to ask him, grab him for a question, um, he said, oh, I'm I'm the BBC, I'm Irish, like, I'm not talking to you. But, you know, it was said with a joke, um, with a smile. Um, you know, so I, I think the fact that relations now between Downing Street and the White House are actually very good. They've, they've been repaired under Rishi Sunak you know, after the Um, You know, the clown car of, you know, of Liz Truss's premiership and before that Boris Johnson, when from the American point of view, they they were seen as these kind of Brexit ultras who were willing to sacrifice stability in Northern Ireland for the sake of the purity of this Conservative Party goal of, of distancing themselves from Europe. Now, you know, Biden and his people feel that in Rishi Sunak and the current Administration in Downing Street, they have people, friends that they can they can do business with, and so I don't think you know Biden will want to do anything that would undermine that.
0: So let's talk about your new book, Laurie Carroll. There will be fire. Margaret Thatcher, the IRA, and two minutes that changed history. And it, of course, it's in the background of what's happening now with this visit of President Biden to Northern Ireland. Given that there's a heightened sense of security going on. And it reads like a thriller, or a crime thriller, I guess is another way to put it. And it's about, you know, the before and after of the Brighton hotel bombing in 1985, which targeted Margaret Thatcher. She narrowly escaped, but five people were killed. And Patrick McGee, the bomber, is somebody that you have profiled, and in fact you asked him, you know, about the cruelty and the and the blood and whether or not and of course the dilemma throughout the book is is this man a murderer or a or a soldier? And you ask him for what? What did that killing do? So what was the answer?
4: Well, I mean firstly to step back a bit just, but why I mean this story, you know, I think so matters is that it was largely forgotten and the fact that the IRA came so close to to assassinating Margaret Thatcher, one of the most uh, consequential leaders of, this, of the second half of the 20th century. I mean, she wasn't just the prime minister, prime minister, she was the Iron Lady. I mean, right up there with Mikhail Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan as, a, as one of the kind of the crucial trio of world leaders at that time. They were also looking to, to wipe out her her government. I mean, she was in this hotel with all of her cabinet and the fact that the IRA, for them it was personal. I mean, she, the reason they went after her was that they blamed her for the deaths of 10 Irish Republican prisoners who had starved themselves to death in hunger strikes. And so the fact that they even went after her um, and they spent years kind of scouting um, and surveilling her and getting closer and closer until finally they're able to plant a bomb. And it almost, I mean, one of the great what-ifs of history remains the fact that she just so narrowly escaped quite as she had died now, she didn't, um, and there, thereby unfolded down a separate story of the huge police manhunt for the bombers. Um, and, you know, a lot of the story is is that as well. It's like a police procedural as to how, you know, the police um, went after the bombers. But, I mean, to get back to your question about the, I mean, the morality of it, um, I mean, the IRA felt that, they were risking to kill hundreds of civilians in a hotel because she was just such a target. I mean, they knew that this could have I mean, if they could they could kill her, that this would firstly be hugely popular with their with their grassroots, republican grassroots in in Northern Ireland, because she, in terms of Republican demonology, was right up there uh, with Oliver Cromwell, this seventeenth century kind of British invader. And secondly, if they had killed her, this this could have changed the whole calculus, strategic calculus of the of the troubles. Um, and they felt that somehow this might lead to the, the British evacuating Northern Ireland. And so they felt all of that was worth blowing up a hotel filled with hundreds of people. And you know, they so they they felt that the ends justified the means. And the fact that they, they came so close, in still even though they failed ultimately to kill her but the fact that they did come so close for them justified it.
0: Well, the idea there that the IRA thought that by driving the British out of Northern Ireland, that the Northern Irish would just accept the, that new reality, as you point out, was pretty naive. I mean... If, I mean, it's almost like the same situation here with nine eleven. where had that plane hit the Capitol as it was supposed to do, the one that went down in Pennsylvania, can you imagine what would have happened here in the United States in terms of political blowback? And like equally so in the UK, there, there, there would have been a lust for vengeance, wouldn't there have been?
4: Well, again, we one can, spe- can only speculate. I think that there might have been. But when you see how... I mean, it's such a contrast between what happened in 9-11 and and Margaret Thatcher um, in 1984. Firstly, she, unlike George Bush, who was kind of hunkered down and stuck in in the bowels of, of, of various security locations, she, within hours of the bombing, she was striding out through the rubble and she insisted that the conference, the Conservative Party conference, would go ahead as usual, literally within hours of the bombing. And whilst police were next door, coming through the ruins of the hotel, look, still looking for, for bodies or even survivors. The Conservative Party conference went ahead, right in the in conference centre, right next door. And, her and, and she horrified her own police and senior aides who, who wanted to, to shuttle her off to London, get her out of there. And she said, no, no, I'm staying. Uh, because it was not for her. It was not enough that the IRA had failed to kill her which was that the conference had to go ahead as usual so that the, the IRA had not even managed to derail the conference. I mean, that was the type of personality she was. And she gave this bravura uh, speech um, at, the, at the Tory party conference, which, and even for those who despised Thatcher, and there's many, many people who did, not just Irish people, but British people, even they would acknowledge that that was her finest moment. But what followed after that, I would argue, was, and I find this part, of the research, fascinating is that her even, in a sense, more to her credit, was the restraint she showed after that. There was no nine eleven style. Let's you know start dropping bombs or extreme rendition or extraordinary rendition. And so there was no you know new round of internment in Northern Ireland. The, there was restraint. I mean, the, she allowed the police just to get on with their using their existing powers to track down those responsible for the bombing and she also persisted with a political track which led to this treaty historic treaty with the Irish government which he had been planning before the bombing so and that showed in my view remarkable restraints and unfortunately it's kind of a lost era of um of kind of political maturity um which you know was sadly lacking after 911
0: Just in the last couple of minutes then, Rory, uh, the Brighton bomber himself, Patrick McGee, he attended the Forgiveness Talk in the Parliament in London in 2009. Gerry Adams, the leader of Sinn Féin, uh, the biggest party in Northern Ireland, he, as you point out, had real ties to the IRA, even though he denied it. What's the sense, particularly with the bomber himself? I mean, you asked him that question. What What was his answer?
4: He... He's a bit of a, a Hamlet-type figure in that he's, I mean, he he's filled with regrets, remorse, but he still justifies what he did. Um, I mean, since his release from prison, uh, he has struck up a remarkable friendship with Jo Berry. She was the daughter of one of a of, uh, British member of Parliament who died in the bombing that he, he, he killed. And they have struck up this astonishing yes relationship over the course of 20 years. They've appeared on stage together multiple times talking about the reconciliation and building bridges. So, And yet he still justifies what he did as a legitimate act of war. And so what I try to do in the book is to... It, focus, it tells a story in, in the form of a, almost like a novel, except it's all nonfiction and it's all sourced. But a handful of characters, one of them is Patrick McGee, and we enter his world and we see who he was and why he did what he did. Likewise, we enter the world of Margaret Thatcher um, and her, her personality, what drove her, and then ultimately the police, some of the police officers who are then tasked with hunting McGee and um, trying to track him down. And we see how all these, you know, it's a handful of characters from completely different walks of life, different ex- life experiences, different moral codes, and we see how they intersect and how things played out over over the course of two years. And this you know, is, uh, a, is a, gives a window on Irish and British history. Um, and so, yes, it can read like a thriller, but it's real people. And I mean, when I, I mean, spoke to McGee, he, you know, he's a flesh and blood guy. Uh, he's in his seventies now. He, 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 he walks with a cane and he's a thoughtful guy, but you know, he, but he still defends what he did. So, you know, there's, there are no clean conclusions here. It It still leaves a You know, and that's one of the the nature of human affairs, I guess, that there are, it's not a movie, and it just leaves all these, still these question marks after all these years.
0: But the personal still is the political, isn't it, when you look at Ireland today, Northern Ireland, in the sense that it still lingers. I mean, the, the good and the bad, right? The fact that he's come to terms with the daughter of the victim. Yes. Does that translate in a broader canvas?
4: Well... Yes, in that, I mean, his own kind of humanity, um, in a sense, kind of opened up even more when, through that friendship, he, he said himself how, when he became friends with Joe Berry, he, he then discovered through her that Sir Anthony Berry, um, this man whom he had murdered in the Brighton bombing, was in fact not just a Tory warmonger, but was in fact a father, and but all accounts, a very good father, and, a, you know, this interesting, good human being. And that's when it really struck him that, that you, know, the, you know, the inhumanity of what he had done. And you do see in Northern Ireland, I mean, I've been doing a lot of reporting in Belfast, especially the last couple of weeks in the run up to the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And one of the, there's lots of reasons as for kind of pessimism about Northern Ireland, but one of the good things and really positive things that's, that's changed over the past 25 years is that there's increasing amount of what they call mixed relationships there meaning Catholics and Protestants um, forming romantic relationships, marrying, having children, and in so doing, their extended families, you know, Catholics get to meet Protestants, Protestants get to meet Catholics, which hadn't really happened much before because it's a very segregated sectarian society where, you know, there are Catholic housing estates, Protestant housing estates, Catholic schools, Protestant schools. But now through, you know, a new generation of younger people were Catholics, Protestants meeting, falling in love uh, uh, having families and, you know, surprise, people realise that, well, the other in this case, you know, the other uh, Catholics or Protestants are just like us and there is the you know, probably the single most you know, most important source of optimism for the future of Northern Ireland
0: well, Rory Carroll, I thank you very much for joining us here today Thank you, Ian And again, I've been speaking with Rory Carroll. He's a veteran journalist who started his career in Northern Ireland as a foreign correspondent for The Guardian. He reported from the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq, Africa, Latin America, and the United States. His first book, Comandante, Hugo Chavez's Venezuela, was named an Economist Book of the Year and BBC Radio 4 Book of the Week. He's now based in his native Ireland as The Guardian's island correspondent. And his new book just out is There Will Be Fire, And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The next door took the kids to the
2: park and disappeared by half.